Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Charles Hernick to the show. Charles Hernick is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions Forum in Washington, D.C. Charles leads Cress Forum's policy work and executes strategies to advance clean energy solutions and innovative approaches to reducing carbon emissions. Charles is an energy expert who understands emerging clean technologies, market barriers, policies, and regulations. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well, Raj. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on, Charles. Charles, I like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Raj, I think that the thing that I would like to think is most interesting about me that's actually related to my work is that I've had the the pleasure of being able to do energy and environmental and climate change work in well over a dozen countries. It's not just in the United States, but a lot in, in Africa and Latin America. And for me, it, it matters a lot because I've been able to see the personal stories, I think, that are associated with big infrastructure, small infrastructure, and energy and, and environment and climate. And that motivates me a lot in, in the work that I'm doing now. Since you mentioned your work, what is your current endeavor? Ah, great question. I'm the director of policy and advocacy for a Washington, D.C.-based organization called Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. And we are classified as a a right-of-center organization, uh, so conservative roots, but focused on all of the above clean energy options and focused on market-based solutions to deliver that clean energy economy that folks are looking for um, to the American marketplace. And can you share why market-based solutions are so important? Well, we are big fans of personal liberty and corporations being able to um, do what's best, not just for their bottom line, but for their customers. And so we're very interested in, in seeing solutions that help supply meet demand instead of just satisfying government mandates for XYZ energy generation. Uh, and so we're, we're really big fans of empowering individuals and the marketplace, and we like to see policy solutions that do that. I really appreciate that. And you mentioned the other countries you've worked on before, worked in before. What are some of the common themes you've seen in these countries? I think the thing that has surprised me the most is that people want to be able to act and people want clean energy. Um, there are countries across Africa and Latin America where folks are looking for their first kilowatt hours of energy. And given the choice, it's not just about price and quantity, but people also care about the other attributes of energy now more than ever in terms of being able to get energy that is not harmful for their local water quality or is not harmful for uh, their air standards. Uh, that they want to you know, be able to enjoy, and also is beneficial or at least not harmful from a climate change standpoint. And so I think that what I've seen that is common across uh, the world, really, is that people are looking at that third dimension. So economists think about price and quantity, but that third dimension being quality is more on the table than ever before. That's really interesting. You know, 
not being aware of what goes on in some of these other countries, it's interesting that this education piece regarding the quality of the energy has trickled down through these populations to where people are asking these questions. What are some of the countries you worked in? I've done work in countries in, in Latin America, you know, ranging from Peru up to Colombia into Honduras, and then in, in Africa, both both East and West Africa. Uh, so in, in East Africa, some, some work in Tanzania and Ethiopia, and then over to Senegal and, and Mali, and then down in South Africa. I've had uh, the, the chance to look at energy projects, whether they be small scale rooftop solar or micro hydro projects or even mega projects um, where folks are looking at installing large scale hydroelectric uh, facilities to to power um, larger cities. The trade-offs that exist there um, really are common you know across countries and so there's a lot that we can learn from each other um, as we push to develop that next generation of, of clean energy and, and for me too as, as a an American and uh, you know a, a patriot, I'm, I'm really interested in how the United States can offer leadership, not just from a policy standpoint, but from a technological standpoint and how it can be uh, American goods and services that are sold with a low environmental footprint or are those clean energy technologies that will help the world solve the climate change problem. You mentioned trade-offs. What kind of trade-offs are you talking about? The trade-offs that you see on a lot of these projects, it's, it all gets down to land use, you know, and that, that folks have a, a certain way that they've used the land in, in the past. And if it's in a, a place where uh, there's a hydroelectric project, people are concerned about how on a daily basis, if they've been using a river or a stream for fishing uh, or for as a water source, how will the project affect that in a positive way or, or in a negative way? Um, for solar facilities, for, for solar power, there's a, always a concern on what else could the land uh, be used for. And if it's on top of a roof, uh, usually it's, it's pretty benign. But even here in the United States, uh, I, I live in Maryland, and there are communities that are interested in doing more solar, but their land resources are limited too. And there have been some very controversial projects where folks are cutting down trees to put up solar panels. And that rubs a lot of people, you know, the wrong way. So you're, you're really talking about, when you talk about some of the newest clean energy sources and renewable energy in particular, you're talking about distributed energy that ends up in people's backyards. And so the question for me is how can we um, get away from a, a problem where people don't want uh, to change their behavior and they don't want to change the way they've used their land in the past, but really figure out how we can get more clean energy in my backyard. And to ask that question uh, so that people are opening up their neighborhoods and community spaces to help develop clean energy in a very tangible way. That's very interesting. Staying with the theme of trade-offs um, along the similar lines, one of the questions I really like to explore on the show is the why behind what you're doing. So there's obviously an opportunity cost. You could be doing you know, many other things in your career why what drove you to do this and stay with this sure i for 10 years before kind of switching gears was an energy and environment consultant for a private sector company but we had 
big clients and the biggest of which was the U.S. federal government. And I worked a lot on U.S. government projects, both for U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and with U.S. Agency for International Development. So that's part of what brought me around the world, but also really brought me to a lot of states across the U.S. where folks are looking at how to make water systems more energy efficient and how they can uh, develop sources of power, even in the water sector. And over a period of, of 10 years and seeing those issues, I, I really, you know, the climate change issue really did come to the forefront for me where it was poor farmers in Honduras and in Ethiopia that were telling me about climate change and climate impacts. And they were telling me the story of how things are different than they were before. And they didn't always use climate change or in, in the way that, that we do, uh, but that what they were describing was just that, and that there was a new normal and they were adjusting to it. And in some cases, folks were concerned. And it was the same concern that a lot of my friends here in the United States uh, would, would share to me reading the latest IPCC reports or um, what the U.S. Global Change Program has put out on an annual basis. And there's a lot of, uh, well, there's, there's obvious reasons for concern. And I figured, well, well, I should try to see what I can do to help um, change the discussion. And that's when I actually ran for Congress. And this was in 2016, ran for Congress in Northern Virginia as a Republican against a Democrat whose top tier issue was climate change. And my point for running was not to um, debate the science on climate, because I think that's pretty well settled, but to really focus on the solutions. And that's really what put me on a trajectory. I, I it either fortunately or unfortunately didn't win that race, um, but uh, it, it put me in a position where I was able to kind of straddle two different spheres between what is public policy um, and then what is the politics of actually getting something done at the federal level, which is interesting and, and where I did want to be able to spend my time. And so I was, I was very fortunate that um, a person, uh, a woman who was involved with my campaign uh, and helped uh, host a fundraiser for me, Heather Reams. She's now the executive director of this organization, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. But she pulled me aside and we had lunch and it was a great conversation where she you know, was looking for someone who had some additional policy depth and could help put forward more ideas and put more solutions on the table so that Republicans and conservatives could be offering more in the conversation and not just be the party of no, but be a party that was offering robust solutions and working in a way that was consistent with conservative philosophy and values. So several things to unpack here. First, I personally believe that people that have traveled, individuals that have traveled more have got to interact with different cultures. It creates a empathy and understanding. If it doesn't apply to you, I understand, but how much of your travel interaction do you feel like affected your decision to, you know, pursue this endeavor? A huge amount. And I think that that's where, you know, visiting those places and having the, the benefit of seeing, well, you know, it sounds kind of romantic, but I'm a romantic guy, but it's, it's really all of the beauty in the world and all of the different communities where people are have the same desires you know they want to 
uh, be able to enjoy themselves uh, after work. They want to be able to find, you know, a job that provides a reasonable income so that they can, you know, buy their wife or girlfriend or, or boyfriend or whoever it is um, a nice dinner and enjoy, you know, what is uh, a, a good life, whether that be in, um, you know, El Salvador or whether that be in Colombia or whether that be in Mali. Um, people, we're all, we're all cut from the same cloth. And you see that in, in different parts of the world. And then you see that we're all coming up on a, a common issue. And it's motivating to be able to think about how someone like me can, can use the resources and tools that I have, the things that I'm good at, um, which are policy analysis and, and speaking to people um, at that personal level and trying to help them understand how, how the facts have changed. What are the types of policies that would be effective? What's been effective in the past? And so that's a big part of, of what I do in my um, day-to-day job, just report before re- uh, recording this um, conversation with you. I was up on Capitol Hill meeting with uh, a number, briefing a number of, of Capitol Hill staffers, Republicans, Democrats uh, on the House side to talk about what has changed in clean energy America over the past decade. And that's a great conversation uh, to be able to have. And, and I'm glad that I can help um, carry carry the flag for the technologies and the policy solutions that have been working. So can you share some of the things that you have seen change in the last 10 years? Sure. I think that what's really impressive is how renewable power has come online in the United States. Um, renewable energy now makes up 18% of U.S. power generation. That's up from just 10% in 2010. So that's an almost doubling um, of it. At the same time, so you're seeing that ramp up in renewable power, costs have dropped dramatically. And it is now cheaper even without subsidies, to build wind and solar and sometimes natural gas. But a lot can be done with wind and solar. And on a price basis, those two technologies will almost always outcompete any other type of technology. And that's a remarkable transition uh, to see that happen over the past decade. And it's good because that transition has happened while U.S. consumers still pay a a relatively small percentage of their income. It's less than 4% um, that Americans pay on a monthly basis on average uh, for electricity. And that's down, actually down a percentage point. Um, It was just over 5% a decade ago. So it means that people have more disposable income. They're saving money uh, on their utility bills, it's cleaner, and we're we're seeing that in a in a major way, in terms of carbon emissions, and and where we are seeing um, a, a major success is in the power sector. Um, carbon emissions have come down twenty five percent over the past decade, and that's a great trajectory to be on. We need to do a lot more. Everybody knows that, but it's also important to understand where some of the successes have been and figure out how we can replicate those successes in other sectors. So when you're speaking with these staffers, how receptive are they to this information? Very receptive. And I think that that's the encouraging thing. For this particular endeavor, we work with an organization called uh, the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, and and they work with um, Bloomberg NEF to distill the data. And this event is among a number of events that they do on an annual basis to update folks. And the room was packed. 
and it was encouraging because these are uh, young uh, rising stars in in terms of policy making and, and development. And so it was encouraging to see the the real questions uh, that they have and and you know the earnest look that they want to understand what's working, what's not. And so it was a, a very um, beneficial conversation to have with them. Now, at the top of the recording, you mentioned that your organization is right of center. And very often people like to, you know, draw lines around individuals, put them in boxes because it's easier to paint with a broader brush. <laughs> you know, currently currently in our environment, you know, some would argue that Democrats are for the environment, Republicans are against. Can you help shed some light on some of those issues? Yeah, I think that's, well, obviously an oversimplification. And it's not that, you know, simple. I think that a lot of the Republicans that I talk to and meet with um, really do value clean energy and environment. And, and that's the thing is that like no one is for dirty air. No one is for dirty water. The question is how do we prioritize and how have voters in the past of either party prioritized um, what it takes to make an environmental improvement versus all of the other things that really do keep us busy on a daily basis. Um, you see healthcare as a recurring issue. National security is something that we need to worry about and that we look at. And economic growth is is really um, a, a bedrock issue for, for folks who vote for either party. And so what I've seen is is really that it's not that Republicans didn't care about environment. I'm sitting in my office and I've got a, a giant picture of, of Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, um, who helped establish the conservation movement in the United States and helped uh, establish what ultimately became our national park system. And you look at Republican presidents in the past, Richard Nixon, who's famous for a lot of things, but should be famous also for um, establishing the Environmental Protection Agency and under his watch signing uh, the Clean Air and, and Clean Water Acts. And those are non-trivial pieces of legislation that have put the United States at the forefront globally of prioritizing the environment. And so what you're seeing recently, though, is, is a change and a, a groundswell, I would say, where Republicans are finding their not just conservative roots, but their conservation roots and their environmental uh, focus and lens. And that's been a lot easier to talk about. Climate change is, is more at the forefront of the national discussion. Um, it's it's more of a household, you know, around the dinner table issue uh, than it ever used to be. And it's one where young people in particular and young Republicans, it's a top tier issue. It's a generational issue. And this is one where the youngest Americans around today will see the consequences of climate change in their lifetime. And for them, it's a, it's a make it or break it issue. And so it's one where the party and you see elected officials being more and more responsive to those demands um, of, you know, not just the, the younger Republicans in their party, but of, of Americans writ large who are interested in seeing good environmental stewardship. And I think that that's where uh, Republicans have stepped back into the fold. You mentioned a word earlier, you said prioritize, and I so agree with that. You know, I think in the past, you, you mentioned healthcare, then there is jobs and there's the economy and, you know, the environment or climate change might fall in fourth or fifth place. I feel like 
if this messaging is done almost better, then perhaps there's a way to tie all that together where people aren't essentially forced to choose between their priorities. You know, the, from where we sit over here, we feel like climate change can, you know, directly be tied to long-term health, you know, the the opportunity for jobs going forward, the, the opportunity for the economy to grow, all can be tied back to climate change. Um, how do you feel that, you know, this kind of messaging can be better conveyed to, you know, the general public? Well, it's, Doing what I do a lot, I do a lot in in my daily job, which is try to communicate where the opportunities have been and what's the trajectory that we're on. the The truth is that clean energy is now cheaper than any other kind of energy. The economics have never been better uh, for renewables and for other sources of of clean energy, and demand has never been higher. When you look at that, what's that nexus between economic growth and environment? There's never been a better deal to be had. And what that means is that we've seen over the past decade a growing economy. We've seen energy efficiency increase over that time. We've seen emissions uh, go down a little. They need to go down a lot more. Um, but we need to be able to crowd in investment into this space and we need people to see the opportunity. And that's one where if you look over the past decade, the top two fastest growing jobs in the United States. Number one and number two have been a wind turbine maintenance person and a solar panel installer. And so that just goes to show you, if you want a transferable, good paying job, you should be looking at the clean energy industry. And that's something that a lot of folks don't think about at first. And so it's talking about those economic opportunities for, you know, working class people that are looking for, you know, economic opportunity, for investors that are looking for a good return on investment. Just a couple of weeks ago, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the biggest investment firm in the world, announced that they are looking at climate change um, as a factor in their decision-making as it relates to all of their global investments. And that's a big deal when you talk about all of that money and all of that economic opportunity um, that is right there to do something good for the environment. It's very encouraging. I agree. I think, you know, since the business leaders roundtable last summer, between that and Larry Fink's announcement uh, last month, I think there's going to be a lot more people taking this entire issue very, very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned all these previous projects. And, you know, a question I'd like to ask is, any favorite projects that you've seen? What do you mean? In terms of, of technologies or... Tech technologies or any other projects you saw implemented across the world? Yeah, I think that one technology that I'm particularly excited about is carbon capture storage and, and even carbon capture utilization. And to just use your uh, your imagination for a second, everyone's driven down the highway and you see a smokestack and it's pointed up and you can see you know some smoke billowing out of it. And the concept with carbon capture storage is to take that smokestack and flip it upside down. And for coal-fired power plants or for natural gas, the technology has matured and is really now basically ready to come off the shelf in a big way um, if we can help encourage the demand um, to do so. And the, the benefit for that is to be able to eliminate emissions 
um, and kind of closed the loop on carbon dioxide in a way that just really wasn't possible before. And there are a lot of folks, even some of the presidential candidates that are looking and they just want to close down coal, close down coal in the United States, shut down the industry, and we'll find jobs for for these other folks. And that may happen just as a result of, of market forces. I think that's a bad use of government. But what I do want to make sure we don't foreclose on is how to design technological solutions to make it so that coal has a smaller footprint on the environment not just for the benefit of the United States, but because this is a technology that we've developed here that really the world needs, because they still are building coal-fired power plants in China, in Southeast Asia, and in Africa. And if we're serious about climate change, we need to be serious about identifying and, and deploying those types of clean energy or clean tech solutions all around the world. And it's one where the United States has come a long way to develop those. And I want to make sure that we can uh, continue on that track and be able to help close that carbon dioxide loop um, and help achieve that net zero emissions goal that we're, that so many of us are, are working towards. I do like the uh, carbon capture technology. I think Bill Gates's Breakthrough Energy Ventures recently invested in a carbon capture technology in California, if I'm not mistaken. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yep, we're, we'll see more and more deployment. There are a couple of projects, um, you know, in the United States, uh, but in you know Louisiana, uh, folks are looking at how to build pipelines to move carbon dioxide uh, from one area to the next. Congress, in a bipartisan way, and I think that's an important thing to underscore. Uh, two years ago, offered a tax incentive to help send a signal to the market that this is where we want to see investment go. Just yesterday, uh, U.S. Department of Treasury released their guidance so that folks can help take advantage of that tax credit and, and actually be able to utilize it. So things are moving in the right direction, and I'm excited what for what the next few years hold. I appreciate your insight. So, Charles, a question I'd like to end the show with is if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Biggest word of wisdom maybe that I have is is talk to everyone that you come across and accept all those invitations. When you're at a networking event and someone uh, you know gives you their business card, do try to find you know the 15 or 30 minutes to have a cup of coffee or a phone call with that person. I'm routinely surprised by how much I learn, not just about other people, but about new technologies, new policy ideas real solutions that people are working on in areas where I wouldn't have expected it. And to, to say yes to people, we all live busy lives and, you know, you got to, you know, bring the kids uh, someplace or you, know, you got to get to the gym and you got to go to the mall and, and finish that shopping uh, that, that you needed to do. Everyone's busy. Um, but to find the time uh, as a part of your your job or as a part of, of what you do for pleasure after to have those conversations, because I think that that's one thing where I've, I've learned that human element um, and then better understood some of the new technologies. Um, we, we do have a lot in common, uh, Democrat or, or Republican, liberal or conservative, uh, person who lives uh, in the North or in the South, East or West. There's really a lot of opportunity to learn from one another and help each other out uh, with the ideas that we're working on. And to, to say yes uh, and to take time for those conversations is maybe the only advice that I could give. 
Well, Charles, I really appreciate those words of wisdom. And I also appreciate the fact that you said yes to this interview. So <laughs> Char Charles walks his talk. So Charles, I really appreciate you. And I look forward to catching up with you again in the future. Sounds good. Thank you, Raj. Thank you. Thank you.